Thanks for listening to the Trial Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Jerry Dobson. Jerry had a 37-year television broadcasting career, which included stints at Global Television and CFDO, as well as being a day one at Sportsnet, covering Premier League and TFC soccer for 18 years. He was also a jack-of-all-sports trades, covering a variety of other athletics, including six different Olympic Games. On September 10th, 2016, at the age of 63, Jerry did his final broadcast when Toronto FC played the Chicago Fire in the Windy City. Now, almost seven years later, it's an appropriate time to catch up with Jerry and find out how he is spending his well-earned retirement. Welcome, Jerry, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? (laughs) I'll answer both questions then. Actually, uh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm doing great, enjoying retirement. It's wonderful. And I'm living in the city of Ottawa now. The reason for that is like I lived all my professional career in Toronto. My wife and I retired to the Niagara area. But over the years, our three grown children ended up coming to Ottawa for various reasons. And they have careers that are will leave them in Ottawa unless they choose to leave. But I doubt that'll happen. So we figured we shouldn't be closer to our kids. And so last year we made the move and came to Ottawa and we love it here. It's a great city. I hear great things about it. And uh, it sounds like everyone who goes there says it's amazing. And you got a great situation. You got the kids close enough, but not on the payroll anymore. <laughs> That's true. They're all independent on their own. Uh, our oldest daughter, she's a high school teacher. My second daughter, she is a, a curator, museum curator with Parks Canada. And our son has a pretty good position in the military here in Ottawa. So they're all settled here. They're not going anywhere. They're at arm's length, but uh, they're right here. So it, it's it's lovely. We, we really enjoy having them around. Fantastic. Well, congratulations. That's great stuff. Jerry, we're going to start with the most important question first. How is your pickleball game coming along? You know what? It's not coming along at all. I know the sport is growing. People are loving it. It's exploding. But my wife has a tennis background, and I have a, a little bit of a tennis background, not as much as her, just recreational, of course. And she loves tennis, and I like tennis too. And I, I, we just haven't made the plunge. We hear about so many people getting injured, you know, breaking a finger or hurting a wrist or whatever, knees. And so we're happy with tennis and the other sports that we choose to play, golf and hiking and all that. No pickleball yet. Okay, well, we'll see. We'll see. They, they're pitching it as a less invasive sport. But uh, as you know, <laughs> injuries occur all the time in all sports. Now, as you know, Jerry, in the broadcasting business, not many people have a chance to go out on their own terms as you did. So almost seven years after you exited at the top of your game, can you look back and say it was the right call or any regrets? Uh, no regrets at all. No, uh, I, I made the decision at the time. I'm, I'm one of those people who thinks, you know what, how long are you going to live? And what do you want to do in the later years of your life? And so I thought, I still have my health. Financially, we were secure. The time was right. I have no regrets at all. The only thing that I miss is the camaraderie with the guys, you know, traveling, going here, going there, doing games, doing events, whether it be Olympics, whether it be soccer games, tournaments, whatever. You miss that. And that will, that missing that will never go away, I don't think. But I got, I also got tired of the grind, you know, traveling here and there. And you know what travel is like now. And so, I think I made the decision at the right time for me, and I have no regrets about it whatsoever. Well, that is excellent to hear. I think it's good if we can go all the way back and get the Jerry Dobson story. Where were you born? And describe your upbringing. 
I was, it's almost like another era for me because I was born on a farm outside of Barrie, Ontario. And when I went to school, I actually began school. There was no kindergarten for me because I was in the country. And I actually began school. This is hard to believe. This is going to date me. Sound like my father's generation. I began school in a one-room school. Wow. Ranked one to eight in a one-room country school. And over the years, that school expanded. And by the time I left there, it was larger. But uh, yeah, I grew up in Barrie. Uh, I was a classic, you know, working on the farm as a kid. And when I wasn't, you know, when I was too young to work, I was fishing in the stream. We had a community outdoor rink where I played hockey. We played hockey every day, it seemed like, after school and on weekends during the winter. And I played minor hockey in Barrie because that was the closest town. But it was a real country farm upbringing. And I enjoyed every minute of it. You know, you, you don't know what you don't have, right? You can't miss it if you don't have it. And so I didn't know anything other than what I had. And so it was, it was a wonderful childhood and a wonderful upbringing. And I enjoyed every minute of it. Well, eventually you found your way to graduating from Centennial College in 1981, a diploma in radio and television programming. Your final term was a work term as an intern. Jerry, was that kind of where you got your start in broadcasting? Yeah, the, the beauty of college back then, and specifically Centennial College, is that it was a three-year program. And the first semester of the final year was an entire work placement. And I'll give uh, credit to Don Gray, who was the coordinator of the program way back then. He was a, he did enough hard work that he was able to place students in various broadcasting entities or, or newspapers or whatever for the entire semester. That was your job. You were getting paid, but that was your job. You would go five days a week or whatever shift that that company decided to put you on. You were a low man on the totem pole. No question about that. You were running, you know, back in those days, you were ripping wire copy, delivering newspapers and getting coffee for people. But uh, that's where I got started. And the beauty of that is that for me, and it happened to other people as well, after a few weeks of that, different staffing situations happened. I think somebody in my case somebody got pregnant and had to go on pregnancy leave. I think somebody else left for whatever reasons and they found themselves short and they needed to hire somebody. So being there five days a week for the previous six weeks, it was a no brainer for the company. It's almost like that work placement was an audition. And so they hired me right on the spot. And so I was fortunate enough that I was able to to, to get that job and complete school at the same time. And I also had another job at the same time, and that was part-time job at CKO All News Radio, which no longer exists, but it was 99.1, I think, on the dial. And I was actually working at CKO, working and interning at Global, and going to college all at the same time for that that fall semester of my third year. It was It was quite a ride. <laughs> you had the energy, but like you say, your your job was kind of the audition. You found yourself working in news at Global TV, but you moved from news to sports and you joined the sports line team with Bob McCowan, Bill Bird, Vic Router. How'd you make this move over to sports? You're right. It was news for me and it was news at CKO Radio. In fact, my, my very first assignment, even before Global at CKO All News Radio, was the Mississauga train derailment. I don't know if you remember that, of fall of 1979. I got the call. I was at home. It was like, and this was a fledgling radio station. It was very young and they didn't have a whole lot of staff. And I was just some junior news writer. But I got the call at home one night, I think it was 11 o'clock or midnight. And the assignment editor on the phone said, yeah, there's been some sort of an incident with a train in Mississauga. Can you go out there and have a look? 
So I went out there and I was a rookie. I didn't know what I was doing. I had no clue. All I know is that I was there for 24 hours until somebody else showed up. And it turned out to be, at that time, I think it was the largest evacuation of people in North American history. I think that's been displaced now by various hurricanes. So anyway, so that was my start in news. And then I went to Global and I was in, in the newsroom there as well. But trans, I'd always wanted to be in sports. And so the way that transpired was, and I'll give Mike Anscombe all the credit in the world. He was the sports director at Global TV at the time. And he wasn't my boss, but he needed somebody to come in on the weekends and record because they didn't have a sportscast on the weekend back in those days. And he wanted somebody to come in and record the, the football games in the afternoon, the CFL games, the Saturday and the Sunday CFL games, record those games and cut the highlights. And I volunteered to do that. And so I started doing that. And after a while, I thought, you know what? Why don't I write him a script as well? I know how to write this stuff. So why don't I write him a script? Because I know he's going to come in Monday and he did the noon show on Monday at Global and he, he'll do those highlights. So I can remember sitting at home watching on Monday and did the highlights and he read my script. I thought that's pretty cool. So a couple of weeks later, I thought, why don't I go one step further? And back in those days, you could get away with this. There was, there was no unions and I'm not not disparaging unions. Unions are great. They, they serve our purpose as well, but there was no union there at that time. And I was able to do pretty much whatever I wanted to until I got told not to. And so a couple of weeks went by and I cut the highlights of the football games. I wrote the script and I laid my voice down on it. And just for fun, see what would happen. So I'm watching on Monday. There's my highlights with my voice on it. He introduced the highlights with my voice on it. And I thought, I don't even work in the sports department. So that happened. And then a couple of weeks after that, I can't remember what transpired, but again, a staffing issue. And it might have been Vic Router leaving to go. I'm not sure if it was to go to TSN, was TSN was starting up. I can't remember. But anyway, there was an opening and Anscom wanted me. So I got that job and uh, then I was full-time in, in sports reporting. And that's basically how it got started. Well, one of the guys you worked with is no longer on radio, but now podcasting. The Bobcat, Bob McCowan, is famously a bit prickly. How'd you like working with him? Well, you know what? I never had a problem with Bob, and I know a lot of people did, and a lot of people, they, they didn't like his style. I never had a problem with him. I worked for Mike Anscombe, and then Mike left and went, he, uh, he went full-time news, actually, and then Bob McCowan came in, and I worked for him at Sportsline. But I never had a problem with Bob, and I think I got, you know, working with him closely, I got to understand what he was all about. And... Bob told me a story one time, and I might not have the specifics exact, but this is the general idea, because he used to do a call-in radio show. And I remember at the beginning, he would tell me, we weren't getting calls. Nobody was calling in. I was, I was playing it straight, and we weren't getting calls. So he thought, I got to have it. I got to have a shtick here. I've got I've to upset things. I got to make people angry, see what happens. So he started doing that. And of course, the phones lit up because people wanted to call and yell at Bob McCowan or disagree with Bob McCowan or whatever the case might be. And so he became very popular with that. And so that was a shtick. I'm not, I'm not saying that he was fake or he was phony, but he created something for himself that worked and it got people listening. It got people engaged. And he's a sharp guy too. He could come in there without doing any homework and the red light would go on and he would start. He was brilliant that way. So I never had a problem. Definitely a personality. Jerry, from Global, you moved on to Scarborough's CFTO, where you covered a variety of sports from 1984 until 1997. And then, in 1998, a new sports channel launched called Sportsnet. 
what brought about you becoming a day oneer on Sportsnet? Well, it was I guess it was a number of things, and, and part of that I guess was my background at CFTO slash CTV because that's where I sort of developed, and it, it wasn't you know de- by design; it was just by chance. The way it happened is I became as you described me as a bit of a jack of all trades. I could do a number of different things. I, I leave it to other people to decide whether I did anything well. That's not my decision to make, but but I was able to do a number of different things, and I was able to get to a lot of different Olympic games and with CTV, and they had the old Wide World of Sports show where I, I ended up over the years doing everything from squash to car racing to you name it. I, I did all of that kind of thing, and so I had a pretty varied background. And also with Global, back in the days in Global TV, at one point, Global TV was the owners of the Toronto Blizzard of the old North American Soccer League. Yet at one point, I was kind of one of the beat reporters covering that team. And so when Sportsnet went on the air, the executive producer at the time, at the beginning, basically started that, the whole newsroom part of that company was was Scott Moore. And Scott, I guess, had heard that you know, somebody told him that I had done some soccer and what had happened was Sportsnet, looking for programming, bought the rights to the English Premier League to, lo- to show live games. And nobody in Canada had shown live games. Before. It was always taped highlights and taped games. And somebody had said to him, yeah, I think uh, Jerry Dobson knows a little bit about soccer. So he called me and he said, yeah, somebody told me you know some soccer. We're doing the Premier League. Do you want to host it? And that's basically the way that worked. And so I did that. And then I was able to do a whole bunch of other things at Sportsnet because they needed people back in those days. They had all the programming and they needed people who could, you know, dabble in this, dabble in that. And I had done skiing over the years, so I ended up doing skiing at Sportsnet. So it was just a confluence of factors that came together in my background, having done a whole bunch of different things. I was I was kind of the kind of guy they needed, I guess. You are perhaps best known for your soccer coverage. You have been a part of Sportsnet's English Premier League telecast since the very beginning. During that time, you covered one of Canadian soccer's greatest goaltenders ever, Craig Forrest, both while he was playing for West Ham in the Premier League and when he played for our Canadian national team. You then worked with Craig for 14 years covering Premier League and TFC from the broadcast booth. Was that somewhat surreal for you to go from covering a guy on the pitch to then having him join you as a broadcaster? Well, you know what? The business is so crazy. Anything can happen at any time. And I, I did not foresee Craig retiring when he did and coming, you know, to become a broadcaster, but it was fantastic. And yeah, I thought, wow, he, this guy's a legend in Canadian soccer and he's going to be sitting beside me in the studio or in the broadcast booth, whatever the case may be. So uh, yeah, it was it was something special and we developed quite a relationship over the years. We're friends to this day, even though uh, Sportsnet no longer does soccer and I'm no longer in the business. We we still we see each other from time to time, and but yeah, it was it was a it was a surprise, a pleasant surprise, and he was great to work with. Well, your positive relationship was obvious to even the viewers. You guys kind of see like Bert and Ernie. I may suggest. In <laughs> fact, I think some people thought you guys are like roommates living together. And well, I understand that all of these years later, Jerry, when someone runs into you on the street, you still get asked, "Hey, Jerry, where's Craig?" Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You get you get tied together like that, and people think that you. You know, I, I would, I would be out on a golf course somewhere, and somebody would say, "Where's Craig?" And it's like, I don't know where he is today. He's doing something else, obviously. And I, we, like, we don't, we don't live together. But I tell you, 
we did spend a lot of time together because we traveled covering the Canadian national team and Toronto FC and MLS. And we went everywhere in Canada and the United States. And in order to be able to to spend that much time with somebody, you have to genuinely like them. Otherwise, it would be, I would have quit long ago had that not been the case. But Craig and I got along great. And uh, he was a pleasure to work with, a great guy, give you the shirt off his back. And so, uh, yeah, we didn't live together, but we stayed in a lot of hotels together. Let's put it that way. <laughs> now, you covered TFC games since they started in 2007. Do you remember that first telecast and the vibe behind this new Toronto professional sports franchise? Yeah, you know what I remember about that? And I'm not, I'm not saying that I told you so, but I remember in the years leading up to that, because Craig and I were so close to the sport covering the, the English Premier League. And we knew that there was a groundswell of support for the sport in Canada. And we were also very confident that a Toronto team in Major League Soccer would be successful, at least financially. It would take a while for them to be successful on the pitch, but we knew that the, that the franchise would be successful. A lot of people disagreed, and there were always the soccer haters out there in the sports media who were traditional hockey, baseball, football, basketball people and thought, what are they doing? It'll be a failure. Nobody's going to come to those games. It'll be horrible. And we knew otherwise, and we knew it would be successful. And of course, when they got the franchise, they sold a record number of season tickets right out of the gate before they ever kicked a ball. So we knew that that would be the case. And so there was a, there was a pretty good buildup to that first game. The team was bad. We knew that. But we had the broadcast rights uh, along with CBC, I think, at that time. We shared them. We had the, the good fortune of doing the very first game, and it was in Los Angeles against the LA team that doesn't even exist anymore. But we went down there and we did that first game. They lost. It might have been 2 nothing. I think. I can't remember. But uh, there was a, a lot of buildup to that. We sent a full crew down there, did the whole game as you know as it should be done. And we were quite pleased with with uh, with how we did that, and and how we did subsequent games, and how the broadcast developed over the years. But, but yeah, we were we were confident that it would be a goal financially. It took them a while to finally win the MLS Cup, which they did, but uh, we had no doubt that that franchise would be a success. Well, certainly, when you talk about the growth of soccer, you've seen firsthand the increase in soccer programming. You went from one game Saturdays at 10 a.m. to matches nearly every day. Is that kind of the best indication of the growth of the game in Canada? Oh, I, I think so. And again, I, I mentioned Scott Moore, who was my boss at Sportsnet. I give him a lot of credit because he recognizes well the, the growth of the sport. And he was always willing to take chances too. And sometimes, you know, when you take so many chances, things will miss. But he would he would make enough chances where they were successful. And soccer was one of them because you're right. We went from showing one game on a Saturday and at that time, we were the first ones to do it. There, nobody was showing live Premier League games at all. And people were so appreciative when we did those games. And so we went from doing one game on a Saturday to sometimes a triple header on a Saturday, a game on a Sunday. And then Sportsnet also purchased the rights to the UEFA Champions League and the, the, the second league, the UEFA League as well. So we were doing games sometimes during the winter. We'd be doing games on Saturday, Sunday, and then the European games on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And those were long days because we'd be doing double headers of those games as well. So we went from doing, you know, like you say, no soccer to one game to like, I don't know, one, two, three, four, five, six, maybe eight or nine games during the course of a week. And so it was relentless and it was a lot of work, but we loved it. It's amazing growth when you think about it. How is James Sharman doing after taking over for you? Do you keep in touch with him? 
Uh, a little bit, not not so much. I have lost track a little bit with James, but I know that he pops up sometimes on Sportsnet and on the radio to talk about whatever the issues might be of the day. So he's yeah, he took over for me, and that that I think he did the one year after I left. There was a full year of Premier League on Sportsnet before Sportsnet no longer had the rights. But uh, yeah, he took over for me. Did a great job. He was a soccer guy through and through. And I, I don't see him that much anymore, but I, but I know that he still pops up on the radio and on TV, so he's got his fingers in it still. Well, as you know, the 2026 FIFA World Cup is not that far away and will be hosted by three North American countries, Mexico, the United States, and Canada. Jerry, are you thinking of coming out of retirement to cover it? No. <laughs> not at all. That is a solid no. Most of our work with World Cups, because we were the studio hosts, meant I never really went to the World Cup because we would send reporters to the World Cups, but we would do the games ourselves from the Toronto studio. The closest I ever got was, and it was wonderful, it was in Germany leading up to the 2006 World Cup because we were the primary rights holder. I think we actually shared it with TSN that year. We went to Germany for a bunch of work leading up to the draw for the World Cup to showcase all the different stadiums and the venues and the, the draw. So we were in Germany. We toured the whole country for probably two weeks leading up to that. But then we did the broadcast from from uh, from Toronto. And so all the World Cups I've ever done, I've done in the studio. So this would be a first chance to go to a game. But, you know, I'm content to watch the games on TV. I've watched every World Cup, you know, sitting around the pool with a TV outside since I retired watching the games or, or wherever it might be. And I'll be content to do that. So the the answer is no, I have no interest in getting back in it at all. I'm happy just to watch and enjoy. That works too. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview, please check out the more than 150 additional episodes available anytime. We got Terry O'Reilly, Evan Solomon, Ted Wallishan, Ken Reed, Jesse Fuchs, Nelson Millman, and John Shannon. How they did it directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7-365, wherever you get your podcasts. This interview with Jerry Dobson was suggested by listener Perry Katina from IG Wealth Management. Jerry was a great idea, so thanks, Perry. If you have a guest suggestion for the Toronto Legends podcast, please connect via my email address, which is in this episode's show notes. Now, back to Jerry Dobson. Now, as I noted in my intro, and as we've talked about, you have been a real jack of all sports trades before specializing on soccer. I can only imagine that covering those six Olympic games would have been a huge highlight. You started back in Calgary, 1988. Yeah, it, the Calgary Olympics, uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, I was, again, I didn't, I was not assigned a sport for the Calgary Olympics. I was what was what you called a roving reporter, I guess. If there was something offbeat happening, I had a producer that would line up these stories and I'd go do it. I was there for the opening ceremonies and the closing ceremonies and a whole bunch of different things in between. But the Calgary Olympics was a fun experience and we had everything. Everything fell into place, of course, except Canada winning very many medals, which we didn't do in those days. But everything fell into place, including even oddities like in the wintertime in Calgary, you might get freezing cold followed by a Chinook. And of course, what happened halfway through the Olympics? Here comes the Chinook one day, and you could see it in the sky. You could see the whole weather pattern changing, and so it was. It was a fun time. It was. It it wasn't a successful Olympics from a broadcasting point of view for Canada because, as I said, we didn't win many medals. But it was a fun Olympics. I enjoyed that one thoroughly. I enjoyed some of the others even more, though. 
<laughs> please talk about that because I understand your favorite might have been uh, Barcelona in 1992. Well, yeah, Barcelona again because you know I'm I was never going to get track and field as my sport because that's I'm considered you know I jack of all given something that maybe somebody where we need somebody that, that can jump in and do it because maybe he's done a little bit of it in the past. And so I was assigned rowing, rowing and kayaking. And I thought, okay, no problem. I'll jump into this. And, and the beauty of the Olympics with most broadcasters is you get your assignment probably 18 months in advance. So you have plenty of time to prepare. So I had rowing and kayaking and rowing and canoeing and kayaking. And in those days, Canada was just starting to become good in those sports. And so we didn't know it at the time, but as it turns out, I lucked into one of the best assignments anyone could get in Barcelona because our rowing team, both men and women, were unbelievable. We won several gold medals. The men's eights won gold. The women's eights won gold. Um, There were singles. There were pairs. There was Silken Lauman. Some people, if they're old enough, they'll remember the Silken Lauman story, who was a world champion. And in the lead up to the Olympics, she was in an accident where she gashed her leg. It was touch and go whether she'd be able to walk properly again. And and eventually she was able to compete and she finished third, won the bronze medal, was a huge story. So I was able to call, I forget how many medals it was, but something like four gold medals and a couple of others in those games. And I was covering a sport that I didn't even know much about at the beginning. And so that was, that was probably the best Olympic experience I had. Although Lillehammer, Norway, a couple of years later, wasn't far behind, but I really enjoyed the Barcelona games. Well, that's so exciting to do so many different games in so many different places. And your mind is sharp for stats, Jerry. It was four gold medals that you covered, Barcelona 92. How about your football work on Super Bowls and Grey Cups? Yeah, I was basically Super Bowls. I've only been to one Super Bowl, and that was that was actually, that's the Super Bowl that I went to was in Miami, or was it Tampa? No, it was Tampa, actually. You know, these years, these years, this a long time ago now, was when I was with Global, and it was basically a reward for all the work I had led up to doing leading up to the Super Bowl, and I went and I watched that game. It was in, I think it was in Tampa, probably 1984, 83, 84, something like that. Uh, great Cups, I've covered so many Great Cups as a reporter. Uh, I was, you know, I've covered Great Cups in Ottawa, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, Calgary, over the years. Always fun. Always great to see the city getting taken getting taken over by the Grey Cup. I think it's I think some people would probably agree it's lost some of its luster over the years. But uh, I was fortunate enough that when I was working in the eighties and nineties I covered a lot of those games and they were so much fun. I can't remember now. Don't ask me who played and what the score was in one of those games. But I do remember having a lot of fun covering the Grey Cup. Pat Marsden was my boss back in the in the nineteen eighties at, at CFTO. And in those days, he would double up and go broadcast the Grey Cup games with Leif Pedersen or whoever it might be. And so I would end up going to those Grey Cups as the reporter for the news department, and Marsden would be there with his with his team doing the actual broadcast of the game. So those were always good times. Well, along those lines, Jerry, because you've been in our Toronto market for so long, you worked with a lot of other prominent personalities. I'm going to throw some names out at you, see if you have any stories to share. And let's start with Pat Marsden. Well, Pat Marsden, here, here's the story about Pat Marsden. So it began when I was hired. So I was at Global at the time, and this would have been in 1984, spring probably of 1984. 
And we were sitting around in our office area at Global, the sports office area. And I was there and I forget who all else was there, but Bob McCallum was there as well. And he was my boss at the time. Phone rang. This is before cell phones, obviously. Phone rings and Bob picks it up and he hands it over to me and he goes, Dauber? They all called me Dauber. Dauber, it's for you. It's Pat Marlin. He's got this curious look on his face. So I take the call and it's basically, I'm like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They don't know what's going on. But basically, Marsden was saying, Jerry, I want you to come and work for me. It's just He got right right into it right away. Why don't you come on over for an interview? And so I hung up the phone, and they, the guy said, well, what's that all about? And I go, Marsden wants to talk to me. So I went over and did the interview, and uh, they pretty much hired me on the spot. And so I went over there, yeah, and I think it was the spring of 1984, and worked for Pat, and Pat Pat, the stories Pat would tell that I can't repeat because those are Pat's stories and bless his soul, he's, he's departed this this earth. But but he was he was a, a great boss to work for because he was another one like Scott Moore where he would take chances and he would take risks and he would say, go do it, go do it, take whatever you want, go do it. I got your back. And he did have our back. He was so loyal in terms of the people that worked for him in that in that office and he was legendary because he could go out again without preparation because he had that body of knowledge that he had gathered over the years from when he was a 20-year-old first getting into the business in Ottawa or wherever he began before Ottawa, I can't remember, but he ended up in Ottawa and then Toronto. But he had all that years of experience, all those years of experience and all that stuff in his head. He could show up without preparation and just dive right into the project, whatever it was. So that's probably the two things I remember about Pat Mars that was his his loyalty. Three things: his loyalty, his you know risk taking, go for broke, and his encyclopedic knowledge in his head without ever having to look at it. How about Arthur Vale on business? Arthur Vale, <laughs> you know, I never had a whole lot of contact with Arthur Vale. There's a name that I don't know if I would ever remember again unless somebody brought it up. But Arthur Vale was all business at Global TV. And I never really had a whole lot to do with Arthur, but I just remember very professional and he would talk financial things way above my head and it would be going one in one ear and out the other because I was not a financial guy and Arthur Vale certainly was. But but I just remember him being a very professional guy and very like he took that job seriously and he was basically on Bay Street in his head all the time, it seems to me. <laughs> and we got Dave Duvall on weather. Dave Duvall, Dave Duvall was great. Dave Duvall uh, was one of those guys, he was old school, and he was one of those guys who could write backwards. Because he would do, sometimes, way back when, they, they've moved along since that, years later, but he would stand in front of the glass, actually he would stand behind the glass, which had the map on it, and he would write, you know, high pressure, low pressure, temperatures, wind direction, backwards from behind the glass so it would be forward in front of the in front of the camera so you could watch it and it would all make sense but he would write backwards and he could write with both hands as i recall as well uh and dave he was he was a great guy he flew an airplane too he was a flyer he loved flying in the weekends and uh and yeah but the thing i remember about dave duvall was his ability to write backwards on the glass from behind it was fantastic <laughs> it was his thing i yeah. remember that too sure. Sandy Rinaldo just celebrated 50 years on CTV News with not one, but two primetime specials. Uh, presumably, you worked with her? 
Yeah, I didn't work with her a whole lot, but I worked when she was there. I worked at the same time, so um, I would, you know, I would see Sandy on a regular basis just to say hi as we cross paths in the hallway or in the office or whatever. But I never really worked with Sandy, but a true professional through and through, and she had a lot of staying power, as you can, as you just referred to, fifty years in the business. So, yeah, she's she's a true pro right from the beginning. Let's dive down into your department, Lance Brown. Yeah, Lance came from Edmonton, and there was a whole lot of changes going on at CFTO at the time, because before I got there, before Lance got there, and some other people, CTV Sports was basically Pat Marsden and Fergie Oliver. It was basically those guys, and then Dan Matheson came along as well. And so those three guys all left within a relative short period of time. Pat Marsden left and he went on to do radio and lived in Florida for a while. Dan Matheson went over to, I think he went to CBC or CTV full time. I can't remember, so I should be careful what I say here. I might have it wrong. And uh, Fergie Oliver decided to move on as well and went full time under the Blue Jays and did some other things. So that's why at one point I came onto the scene and then Lance Brown came onto the scene as well because there were vacancies. And he came from Edmonton and Lance had his own shtick, I guess, in terms of the way he presented the sports. And he he did, he he did was a very popular guy at CFTO in those years as well. Uh, he's no longer there. But uh, yeah, I worked with Lance on a regular basis. At one time, I was Lance's boss because after Pat left, I became kind of the boss around there. And so I didn't hire Lance. I did not have hiring authority in those days. He was hired above me. But uh, yeah, Lance worked for me and uh, he had his way of doing his sports cast and very successful. How about Claude Faye? Claude Fagg was, wow, you're pulling up these names, man. <laughs> Claude Fagg, I can't remember if I hired him or not, but Claude Fagg came on as our department grew because it really did grow because we added sports programming on a regular basis back then in the 80s and into the into the 90s as well. Claude, um, solid reporter, didn't know him well from a personal standpoint, but he came in and you could you could send him down to Maple Leaf Gardens as it was in those days and he'd get the goods or you could send him to Sky Dome as it was in those days and he would he could get you the baseball story the football story just solid well when you talk about Maple Leaf Gardens you can talk about Sunil Joshi he came over from City TV and he was recently featured on that Harold Ballard documentary Offside uh, did you work with Sunil I did work with Sunil Sunil worked with me and for me for a number of years and Sunil was another guy who could cover everything. We sent him to do a number of World Series over the years. Uh, Sunil and I also co-hosted a weekly Blue Jays show because back in those days, we were the rights holders for the Blue Jays. And so we did a weekly Blue Jays show. can't remember if it ran on a Sunday, Sunday or a Saturday. can't remember, but we did that. And in fact, one year, Sunil and I I have to give Doug Bassett credit here for a second because Doug Bassett was the owner of CFDO at the time. And when we got, he was another guy. And that's, it's kind of a common thread with the older generation, one generation before me or a little bit older than me. Risk takers, gamblers, go for broke. And Doug Bassett was that kind of a guy as well. And there was one year when we were doing the Blue Jays, they were finishing their spring training in Las Vegas because they were going to open the season in Oakland. And so, isn't that interesting now that I think about it? Because now Oakland, the Oakland Athletics are probably going to move to Las Vegas. But anyway, right. they were wrapping up the preseason in Las Vegas on their way to Oakland. And Bassett had it in his head that we were going to broadcast that final preseason game from Las Vegas. And so, we 
we went down there, a whole crew went down there, and we did that game. And it was Sunil and I who did that game. We broadcast that game together. I was We kind of traded off play-by-play and analysis, although neither one of us was a former player. We, we made it happen. We we kind of bluffed our way through it all, and we did that. So, But Sunil was another guy. You could put him into anything because he's covered the Olympics over the years as well. Did Blue Jays, did Maple Leafs. He's been to Stanley Cup finals. He's been to everything, Grey Cups. Another guy, Sunil's kind of like me, I guess, in that regard, could do a little bit of everything. So... And uh, I got along with Sunil, great. In fact, I think, in, as I recall, on that Las Vegas trip, I think our wives came as well. Going to Vegas, I guess you got to bring your wives, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so we had a lot of love together. We had a good time. Coming up, Joel Tilly. He is not only a friend of this podcast, but he has his own podcast. And I presume you worked with Joe. Yo, for sure. Uh, again, Joe came to... It's the CFTO around that same time as there was that big transition between, you know, the fellows like Fergie and and Pat and Dan. And I think Joe came maybe about six months after me or no, actually, I might have that wrong. He might have come there a little bit before me. And we worked together doing the weekend sports. He was the anchor and I would kind of cut highlights and voice pack voice reports and do different things. And then when I got the job to replace Pat, Joe then worked for me and Joe did the late night sports and Joe he was old school because he was a risk taker and he would he would try anything to see if it would work. And some things would work and some things wouldn't, but that's what it's all about in our business in those days, especially. And so Joe, he was, uh, in fact, Joe and, and uh, his wife and my wife, we used to spend a little bit of time together as well. I always got along with Joe and uh, sometimes I'd, I'd uh, I think, I don't know, Joe, do you think this is the right call? Do it here and well, try it, let's try it, let's try it. Okay, try it. Sometimes things would work, sometimes they wouldn't. But Joe, uh, yeah, I got along with Joe, and he was full of energy. Never seemed to run out of energy. That's what I'm thing I remember about Joe more than anything. Well, I did want to ask you a name you mentioned. Fergie Oliver covered the Blue Jays as well as hosting the Just Like Mom game show. He left CFTO in July 1984, so I wasn't sure whether you would have crossed paths or uh, worked with him. You know, I think I think he had just left. And then I came on board. Now I had I had crossed paths with Fergie over the years for sure, and I hadn't seen him the odd time, not much recently, but in post you know broadcasting. But uh, yeah, I never actually worked with him other than to see him at various events when he was working for CFTO and I was working for Global or whatever. But Fergie, uh, Fergie, Fergie was another one. He would didn't need to prepare anything because it's all up here between the ears, and he would. Uh, and so he would show up and just get the job done. And then and then he became, as I recall, you probably have more information about this than me. I think he kind of left CFTO and became full-time on the Blue Jays broadcasts. That was, I think, his gig after he left CFTO. He was kind of the host and reporter for the Blue Jays for a number of years after he left. Well, he has kind of disappeared from the public eye, but uh, certainly anyone from a certain era, he was always on TV. Yeah. Jerry, you mentioned Doug Bassett. Of course, the Bassett family owned CFTO. What were your interactions with or memories of the, the Bassett family? Well, primarily, my interaction was always with Doug. I ran into his brother, Johnny F. Bassett, um, the odd time before he sadly passed away because Johnny Bassett was big in the old USFL because he wanted to bring the team to Toronto, which ended up not being in Toronto. But I remember... I had a little bit of interaction with him, and I even had a little bit of interaction with with their father, uh, John Bassett, before he passed away. But primarily, it was with Doug Bassett, who was the owner when I was in there, and he was unbelievable. You'd go in there on a Sunday morning at ten o'clock or whatever, and he'd be there. Like, what's he doing here? 
you know, and then he'd be there. And then Monday at midnight, if you're, he'd be there. Like I would, I would jokingly say, I think there's two of him because he seems to be multiple places at the same time. But he, again, he was wild. He would hire people on the spot if he liked them. He would fire people on the spot if he thought they deserved to be fired. But uh, what I remember the most thing about Doug Bassett is the day that he nearly fired me is we were doing the the weekly Blue Jays show. And the show that particular year, I can't remember what year it was, it happened to fall on April 1st. It was the Saturday or the Sunday. I can't remember. I think we did the show on the Sunday, but it was April 1st that year. And so one of our producers decided, let's do an April Fool's joke off the start. And so the beginning of our show, we put, I think it was Dwight Gooden in a Blue Jays hat, and we announced this big trade. I think it was Dwight Gooden. Could be wrong, but anyway, somebody of that ilk is coming to Toronto in this big blockbuster trade. And we stayed with that story until towards the end of the show, and then April Fool's, everybody. And so the phones lit up, and a lot of people thought it was funny. A lot of people were furious with us. And the guy who was angriest of all was Doug Bassett, because he was taken by it as well. And, and he was he was just furious that we, I suppose that we said April Fool's 30 seconds after we announced it, we'd have got away with it. But we left it up hanging there for a while through that show before we called it back. And so the next day he pulled me into his office and he, I thought I was going to get fired on the spot, but he didn't. He said, if you ever pull anything like that again, you're gone, but he didn't. And he said, now get out of here. We'll never talk about this again. That was that. But he was that kind of a guy. He was, he was very spontaneous. Weren't sure what you were going to get some days. Some people were afraid of him. They would not want to make eye contact with him because if you made eye contact with him, he would maybe you'd be the guy that he was going to target, whether a good way or a bad way. But uh, he ran that place very successfully because it was number one in the ratings for year after year after year. But that's the kind of memories that I have. And Jerry, that brings to mind uh, the one I remember from April Fools was when the Toronto Sun put uh, Gretzky in a Leafs uniform on the cover. And uh, <laughs> so, listen, those those stay forever. Oh, they sure do. They stayed forever. <laughs> now, it started in 1967 and was immortalized in a Bare Naked Lady song. The 55th annual Robbie International Soccer Tournament just took place with the championship games once again, played at Birchmouth Stadium, home of the Robbie. Any thoughts on this iconic Scarborough tournament? You know, I give those people so much credit for what they did. I know that the tournament sort of over the years lost some of its luster because things became so expensive. I, I can't say that I was involved and I can't take any credit for it, but they would ask me to maybe host an event here to kick it off or do something like that. So I would help them out with that. And that tournament, you know, they brought teams from all over North America and sometimes South America and Europe to that tournament. It was a hugely successful thing and for a great cause, obviously. And it did some wonderful things over the years. And I was proud that I was able to Again, I, I take no credit, but they would ask me to host an event now and again, and I would do that because I was I would gladly do anything for those people because their hearts were in the right place year after year after year. And it's still going strong today. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm showing my age, Jerry, because you mentioned being a beat reporter for the Toronto Blizzard of the old NASL, or North American Soccer League. Now, what I remember from those crazy days was Brian Budd winning the Superstars competition on TV. The multicolored soccer balls until and the league star. Until they banned Brian Bud. 
Well, please jump in on that. He well, he used. To, I can't remember how many years in a row he won it, but he won it. Maybe let's say it was three. I can't remember what it was. So then they put in this rule where you couldn't come back if you had won it the previous year because he was winning it year after year. And so they basically it was the Brian Bud rule. They basically banned him because nobody else could ever win it. Anyway, carry on. <laughs> no, that's good. And, and I remember in addition to that, the soccer balls, the multicolored balls, and of course, the big star of that league at the time was from the New York Cosmos, Giorgio Chanelia. What do you remember about the Toronto Blizzard and the NASL? I think the things that come to mind were there were some great people when I was covering the team. Bob Houghton was the coach of South Africa, and they had some great players, Ace and Salinge. They had some great Canadian, young Canadian players, Randy Reagan different guys. I can picture some faces and can't remember the names now, but I think what really stands out to me was they played, when I was covering that team, they played at the old the old CNE Stadium on AstroTurf, not the modern day blended turfs that they have now, but the old AstroTurf, which was hard as rock. And so what I remember was watching and covering games down there on a windy day in October or whenever, even in the summer. And because that AstroTurf was so thin and so hard, they, the referee would place the ball down for a free kick and the ball would start rolling because there was nothing to hold it. Guys would pass the ball or the goalie would take a, a free kick or whatever. The keeper would take a free kick and the ball would bounce 30 feet in the air because the, the stuff was so hard. And I can remember players having to really adjust to try and figure out what the ball was going to do. It was horrible on knees. It was a terrible surface to play on. But the ball's running everywhere is what I remember. One other thing that I remember is this, and I'd forgotten about this, but it just came to mind now that we're talking about it, is at one point during the season, the Toronto Blizzard played Juventus in a friendly and it was the largest attended game of the season. There was, I think there was over 40,000 people there to watch that game. I can't remember. It seemed like 40,000 at the time. Maybe it was only 30. I don't know. But it was a huge crowd. And it was mostly Juventus fans because it was for the Italian community in Toronto. It was their chance to see their team, Juventus. And so Juventus came to play Toronto FC. And those of us in the press box got the feeling that the Juventus players, their hearts weren't quite in it. And... At the beginning of the game, it was all Juventus, 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 and the crowd was roaring for Juventus. And the game started to turn, and the Blizzard started out playing them. And I can't remember how the game finished. It might have finished in a draw. But by the time they got into the second half, there was as many people or maybe more cheering for the Toronto Blizzard than there were for Juventus. Because I think it was a combination of people starting to appreciate the Blizzard and people getting angry at their own team, Juventus, for not beating this useless NASL team because they thought they should. So I'll always remember that one as well. So it's probably that and the, the hard AstroTurf at old CNE Stadium. Well, Jerry, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about very current events, and that is that the big news around town, Bob Bradley was just fired. As the adage goes, it's easier to fire one coach rather than 25 players. Well, you know what? It's true. And, you know, I never worked with Bob Bradley. He came on the scene. I mean, he was a, he was a coach when I was still broadcasting, but I never really crossed paths with him. But you know what? You lose and you're out. I mean, they I don't think they've won a game away from home this season. They're a bad team, obviously. They don't have good enough players, but it doesn't matter what the players are like. If the team doesn't win, the coach, the coach gets it. And so he's gone. So there's no real surprise there. To me, it's not a question of Bob Bradley's coaching abilities. I'm not that close to it anymore, but 
That's the bottom line, right? If you lose, the coach goes and they're losing. And so he's gone. Well, that is a bit, I guess, of the problem here in the city that they aren't playing very well. I get a sense after their MLS championship win, multiple successful seasons, TFC is kind of regressing back to almost a niche sports alternative in this city. That is to say the hardcore soccer fan will continue to attend, but the general Toronto sports fan is kind of losing a little interest. I know you're over in Ottawa. Do you agree or disagree? No, I think I agree with you, Andrew. I think that um, for Toronto sports fans, and in this, it's not just Toronto sports fans. It'd be fair to say it's just Toronto sports fans. I think it happens in a lot of cities. I think the Leafs are the only the only exception in this city. Doesn't matter what the Leafs do; they'll be they're going to be successfully successful financially. People will still line up to buy tickets. You could have two NHL teams here in Toronto, and they both be successful. We know that. But in other sports, if you remember. Back in the late 90s and early 2000s when the Blue Jays weren't very good, gone were the days of, of filling that that what's now called the Rogers Center, the old Skydome. There would be 15,000, 20,000 people. That would be it on a Saturday afternoon, 10,000, 15,000 people. So sports fans want a winner. And it happens with the CFL too, the Toronto Argonauts. They don't draw the way they used to. The Raptors, they may draw when they're bad, but they're usually fairly competitive. But Toronto FC, it's it's... It's main. It's almost kind of a cross. It's almost like halfway between niche and mainstream. But I think if they were successful, they would do well. But if they're not successful, you're right. The the general fans aren't interested anymore. It's got to be a hot ticket. It's got to be. There's got to be a buzz for people to want to go because people want to go where there's a buzz, right? And there's no buzz with Toronto FC right now. And until they get some better players in there and start winning again, it probably will be a struggle financially. Cherry, please don't yell at me when I ask this. Why can't soccer have a shot clock? A shot clock. <laughs> you know, are we talking like basketball and the pitch counted baseball or that kind of thing? Well, you know what? Maybe it will happen one day. I would never say never because when you look at what baseball has done, baseball, the most traditional sport of all, has made those rules this year with the pitch count and with the, the batter count, whatever you want to call it. And and I love that. Actually, it's made a huge, it's made a huge change in soccer. Maybe someday, but soccer is ultra traditional. Some some people would never change anything in soccer. Maybe one day, I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I normally ask my guests, Jerry, as we close off, what they're working on next, but I hope and I'm jealous that your answer should be nothing or maybe your golf game. Yeah, I, you know what? I'm fortunate enough to be married to a woman who loves golf because I love golf. And I know a lot of guys, they don't have that situation. Some guys probably wouldn't want to play with their wives anyway, but no, I love playing with my wife. We play a lot of golf. We're members at a golf club here, Royal Ottawa Golf Club, and we're there four days a week at least, maybe five. So we play a lot of golf. We go away in the winter, somewhere warm. It's usually Palm Springs, California, and we play golf there, play a little tennis there, and hike in the mountains. And the only other project is our kids, really. I mean, we just not really a project. It's just we like to see them as much as we can and make sure they're happy because my rule is if my kids are happy, I'm happy. And that's all that it takes. And so, no, I'm just enjoying life. I can't say that I'm sitting around doing nothing though, because we seem to be busy doing something. We have a golf trip planned this summer down East to play, you know, the courses down there. And uh, that's pretty much what my life is now. And I have no regrets and I'm loving every minute of it. Well, yeah, absolutely sound like you got it figured out. So good on you. Are you on social media? And if so, where can we best follow or connect with you? I am not on social media. I do go on Twitter, but just to catch up on what with what's going on, 
that's basically where I get my news, as a lot of people do. But um, I'm not Facebook guy. I'm not Instagram. I'm not any of that. So if you want to catch up with me, you're going to have to text me or call me. That's pretty You're going to have to go to on and get the golf course. Always, about Twitter, I always remember with, with Twitter back in whenever it was, 2010, 20, 2008, 2012, whenever it was, we were encouraged to get on Twitter and have a profile and tweet as often as possible. So that was, those were in the early days of Twitter. And I can remember going on there and then I would do a game or an event or whatever and I would look at my Twitter feed and I would be getting hammered about what a lousy broadcaster I am. And I thought, okay, maybe I, maybe I make a few mistakes. Some people think I'm terrible, but does nobody out there think I'm any good? <laughs> because, you know, the people that do, they don't get on there. The only, the, the only people that want to get on there are the angry people. And so I can remember for a while being very discouraged about the Twitter feedback. And then, and I wasn't alone, a lot of people were. But then you get past that and you realize the haters out there, they're the kind of people that, they have nothing better to do with their lives. Don't worry about it and get past it. So I, I got past that, but but still to this day, it's like I really have no interest in engaging and getting on. You know, that's for somebody else can do that. I'm just happy to sit on the sidelines and watch the world go by. Excellent living IRL in real life. That's what <laughs> yeah. we like. Jerry, it was uh, fantastic meeting you, getting to know you, hearing about your career, and obviously uh, very pleased that you're enjoying your post broadcasting career. And I want to wish you a continued success. Well, thank you, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. Uh, I enjoy your podcast. Uh, I enjoyed doing this today. And it, and it's funny doing this, how it brought back some memories that I almost or kind of forgotten about. And it brings them all flooding back. So it's been wonderful. And I appreciate being on your show. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure. And to the listeners, on behalf of Jerry Dobson, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundal from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holawati from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the crier 
Media Network. <laughs>